our generation and probably most people listening need to understand that the government is not coming to save us. There is not going to be a huge pension when we retire. What you have is what you'll have. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Having looked at mental and emotional well-being in the last two episodes of our well-being feature, we're now turning our attention to financial well-being. With the cost of living crisis and new levels of economic uncertainty reached, I'm so pleased that we're able to make this a fundamental part of this series. And we've managed to secure an incredible guest to share her mentorship with us. Today, we're joined by Vivi Friedgut, the founder of Black Bullion, the financial wellbeing platform that equips young people with financial skills for life. Black Bullion is available to over 1 million students across the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And that is just the beginning for them. So to find out more, let me welcome today's 40 Minute Mentors to the show. Hi, Viv. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. How are things? Good. Thank you very much for uh, for for having me. It's always exciting to have a good chat. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and we will do what we always do and get you warmed up with some quick fire questions. So... Please finish the following sentences after me. Well-being means to me... Being able to have a good night's sleep. Love that. A misconception that people have about me is... That I am younger than I seem. A lot of people seem to think because I'm blessed to look younger than I am that I just fell off the turnip truck, um, but I've been around the sun a few times and a little bit, it's a little bit harder to fool me than people seem to think. Ah, okay. Okay. Very well, very that's very important. Um and the last time I cried was when? Well, so I was just visiting my family in Australia. I'm here in the UK all by myself. My entire family is in Australia and uh I left them as uh, two days ago and I'm not gonna lie, I was bawling on the aeroplane as we took off out of Sydney International Airport. Oh, I mean it's such a long way away. I can only imagine how hard it must be to see them and then uh, you know and then leave them again I look after my mental health by I am really lucky that I've got because of close family I think I've got quite good mental health um, so I look after my mental health by um, I hike a lot uh, and I travel a lot I do work from home from all sorts of places and I'm a huge reader and I immerse in other people's brains which tends to uh, to keep me grounded love that thank you very much and if there was one thing that I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be... So a little bit controversial, it would be getting people to stop thinking of fundraising as the metric for success. Uh, raising a lot of money is not a success is not a success story. Building a fantastic business that is sustainable is the success story. If that could change one thing, it would be that attitude. Great answer. And I'm sure there'll be lots of others nodding along to that one. Um Amazing. Well, I, I, I'm, I've heard amazing things about Black Bullion, so I, I'd love to dig into it a bit more. Uh, and I think you had a, a background in financial services, didn't you? So do you mind telling us a bit about your early career and, and where the idea for Black Bullion came from? Sure. Um, it's one of my favorite stories to tell these days. So um, I've, uh, 
I don't like the word everybody goes, oh, I'm so passionate about what I do. Um, I'm not passionate about what I do. I'm like obsessive about what I do, which I don't think is necessarily healthy. Um, but I, I was raised very financially savvy. I bought my first stock when I was 15. Um, it was really important to my, my parents, my mum in particular, because her dad had passed away without signing life insurance papers and it really threw the family's um, financial trajectory off. So I've always been like obsessed by the subject matter. Um, but there was nothing, there was no business in that. Uh, and so I was in, as you said, financial services. I worked in wealth management, de dealing with super high net worth people, sort of ultra high net worth individuals. Love that. 2008, everything went to hell. Um, and a few years after that, I was like, do you know what? I just can't, as as we were saying before, I, I just can't do transactional anymore. I'm a relationship person um, and thought, you know, I'll give this thing a go. And when it fails, I'll move back to Australia and go back into banking. And I failed at failing, which is kind of great, although very unexpected. So that's really where Black Bullion came from. Started very analog. I was on campuses talking to students about budgeting and debt, all very rock and roll. Um, pulled my back out on a train down from Wales, um, had a job offer at the time from one of the big um, investment banks and kind of went, do I go back into banking or keep doing this? Asked a bunch of students and they all said, why can't I just get this on my phone? Which of course is so obvious today. Um, went back to the universities who'd been paying me to lecture and I said, if I build this thing, will you pay for it? They, three of them said, yes. I said, can you pay now? And I'll deliver in time for September, which I didn't know you're not supposed to do. Um, and they said yes. And so I uh, went to an agency, built the first platform, which was terrible. And five years later, here we are as kind of the nationally recognized leader in our space, which is awesome. Incredible. What a, what a journey. Um, and so that was back in 2014 that you launched uh, Black Bullion. So how has that platform evolved? You very uh, you know, honestly said it wasn't maybe all that in the, in the beginning compared to what it is today. So tell us a bit about the evolution of the platform. Yeah, it was terrible at the beginning. I think it's really important for founders to be honest about the early days. Everyone, and too many people tell the story about how everything was brilliant from day one, and, and it's not. And Reid Hoffman, of course, the, the founder of LinkedIn, has a very famous expression where he says, you know, if you're not embarrassed of your first version, you launched late. Um, I'm mortified. <laughs> first version it was terrible um in, so we launched we learned we launched as a technology solution in about 2016 2017 so those first few years were analog um but the platform in the early days represented what e-learning was at the time it was hour-long you know videos which today is like insane um it was quite boring it was slow it was waffly today tiktok has really changed people's attention spans for better or worse i think worse um, our analytics is a hell of a lot better. We work with universities and so we service them as well. So the platform evolution has gone from one to 60. Um, we've still got to get to hundred and 200 and 300, but you, I don't recognize the first platform. It was, it was so bad. It was the best on the market, but it was flat out terrible. <laughs> it makes me laugh because my, I mean, I didn't have a website for maybe two years cause I was, I just wanted to do it all through word of mouth and I was so worried it would. JBM would fail miserably that I didn't want too many people to know about it. And then when we built it, uh, the first website, I mean, it was so dreadful. When I look back now, actually the first two websites were pretty dreadful. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but as you say, I think that's all part of the journey, right? The evolution. Do you mind telling us how a platform works for young people? And who, if we've got any parents listening or any uh, y younger folk listening, um, who should be looking to join? We've got a very small mission. We want to help all people be better with their money, right? So it's a very small mission. 
Uh, so, so the way we work with students is we, we work primarily with the gatekeepers to students. Students are not only um, difficult to reach, trying to grab the attention of a young person today is just incredibly difficult. They're pulled in a thousand different directions. And let's be honest, everything is more interesting than learning about debt and budgeting. Like these are not sexy topics, um, but they are crucial. And people do, especially young people, they do want to get their finances sorted. They're very, they're very sorted on wanting to be financially sorted, but you do have to kind of push them into doing it. So we work with the gatekeepers at which are universities and colleges who then encourage their students or force their students under some conditions to, to engage with us and to do the learning. So it's like, if you want to be an aeronautical engineer, you don't want to spend time doing basic maths. You want to build the wings of you know, of aircraft, but without maths, you can't do the aircraft. So we kind of taken that approach. Anyone can log into the platform and see a certain amount of, you know, of get a certain amount of value. Only students at client institutions can get all of the value. So blackbullion.com and just click on, click on register. There's a huge amount of content, but there's also a lot of tools. We're launching our app in a couple of months, which we're super excited about, which will be free for all young people. So we just, if you just learn one thing about your money, then we've kind of started to do our job. God, what I would have done to have this when I was at university or kind of growing up, I think it's something that I, uh, we'll come and talk a bit, bit more about that actually, but I, I think um, I, I can just really see a huge need for it. And, and I'm not surprised it, it, it's going so well. And um, you mentioned that, that you kind of started with the support of some um, universities uh, and I know now that you know that, that's that's evolved even more in, in colleges across all different countries so I guess I'd be interested in how, how did you approach uh, building those partnerships and how can any uh, sort of students that have signed up really benefit yeah look I think working with there's only one sector I think is more difficult than education and that's healthcare um, these sectors are very slow uh, they operate at glacial pace this is how it's always been done is something we hear all the time, which having come from banking where, I mean, the bank I worked at and other banks um, would spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get literally a 10 second advantage. Um, and then you've got education where even if you can show, you know, a huge advantage will still take them like 12 months to have a first meeting. Like it's just such a different sector. It's very relationship based. So when you're trying to get in, so to speak, it can take a lot of time and it can be very frustrating. But because it is stodgy, on the other side of it, they never they never leave. Our clients keep renewing because we keep adding more and more value to them. And that's, that's kind of the upside to the unbelievable downside of how long it takes to get through the door. The, the best thing really for students, and as, as you said, so many people I speak with say, I wish I'd had that as a kid. I wish my husband had that. I wish my, I wish my wife had had that. It is something I hear a lot. Um, you know, I wish I'd had that as a kid. When when we stop hearing that, we'll know we've done our job. Um, and so how can students get the best out of what we do is by engaging with stuff that they're interested in. So if you're interested in investing, if you're interested in how your money has an impact on the planet, which is the biggest impact on the environment is how you spend your money. If you want to know how to do that better, if you want to know how to, how to be more thoughtful with your money, what are the dangers of, I don't know, buy now, pay later. What are the advantages of ISAs? Learn one thing. Like the way I grew up when it comes to money is small changes done all the time is actually how you make huge change. If you save five pounds a week and you do it every single week from the time you're 18, you know, it becomes a huge amount of money. If you learn one thing every week, 
after a year, you've learned a huge amount. So just start. The hardest thing of everything is to just start. And that would be my single piece of advice for, well, everything in life, but certainly when it comes to money. Absolutely. I think that goes across so many things. It's, it's great advice. Building the muscle, building the habit and, and incremental small steps uh, progress is, is so much better than you hear. It, it's a bit like with going to the gym and stuff, isn't it? Where you're like, I want to suddenly be you know, put two stone of muscle on and be absolutely shredded. Well, actually that, that doesn't happen overnight and you have to just, you know, slowly build the habit of working out and getting in the right behaviors and stuff. So I, I think that's so true uh, when it comes to financial literacy and many other things. I really find it interesting because from talking to you already, I can tell that, you know, the, the slow pace of the education industry, it doesn't seem to correlate with the high in high paced person that you are and the typical entrepreneurial spirit. So I think it also says a lot, I guess, about the the passion you have for your mission and that you're willing to probably just bite your tongue and really take your time with it because it's so worth it in the end because the impact is that much greater. Um, and I think there's a there's a lesson in that probably for us all and for entrepreneurs. Sometimes it does take a bit of time and you have to stick to your guns and just really um, invest for the long term, albeit that's very difficult to do, isn't it? So I think I, I do feel that there are times, and I've been guilty of this perhaps as well, where you kind of just scrap something because it's not, you're not seeing the impact quick enough or the change or the the, the results you want to whereas sometimes it really is worth staying the course isn't it yeah a hundred percent and I think one of the challenges especially as a first time I mean I started a business when I was six um, and then I started my second business when I was eight but really I'm a first-time founder you know is knowing when to trust the process and knowing when the process is broken and I find that's one of the toughest things that I face especially because I'm a commercial founder I'm not a product-based founder so the question for me is always like is this just one of those things that takes time or is this actually taking time because it's not working and Warren Buffett who I just love all of his quotes and he, he's got a quote which is you can't get nine women pregnant and get a baby in a month like some things just take time and I think yeah, it's just the best expression and I think entrepreneurship is like that sometimes it's gonna take nine months but sometimes it can be about, you know, doing things and making it faster and distinguishing between the two and not losing faith and hope. There's no dishonor in quitting something either. And balancing all of those things out is so difficult. Like, should I be quitting? Is it not the right time? Is it just taking time? Is it the process? Is the process broken? And there's no there's no clear answer. So if you get a mentor who can help you, you know, here's a pothole, that's great. But you never really know because when you're doing new things and no one's done them before, by definition, you don't know. So it's hard. It's so true. I think mentorship is really is really helpful in that process, but it's not the silver bullet. And I think also that's where trusting your gut on a lot of things and 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 and, and experience comes into play, isn't it? There's probably times where in the early days you you'll scrap something you shouldn't have done or you'll keep something going for too long and you end up regretting it. But it's all part of the journey. It's all part of the learning. And I think that's one of the the great things about entrepreneurship is that over time, you realize that every mistake is actually, uh, uh, you know, there's a learnings to be taken from it. And as long as you have that great mindset, I think um, you don't need to beat yourself up too much when you make this. And I think those become less, those sort of mistakes become less over time. We're going to come on to talk about the, the cost of living crisis, which I think a lot of our audience will will be really eager to hear your uh, perspectives on but I wanted to just talk a bit more we've already kind of got in a bit to the kind of founder journey 
Um, and you mentioned that despite some very early entrepreneurial experiences, um, this is your first of official, Black Bullion is your first official venture. So um, how have you found that that entrepreneurial journey? Like as a first-time founder, I am one too. Lots of people listening to this will probably be at this the early start of that journey. What have been some of the best bits and the highlights along the way? This is a hell of a journey to be on. I, I'm constantly joking with people. They're like, I don't understand why people do drugs. Just start a business. Like you'll have all the ups and downs that you could ever ask for by starting a business. Look, I love it. I, I'm, I think I'm permanently ruined for employment because um, I just love, I love doing this. I love creating an image, a, a business in what I'd like to think is the image of how I believe business should run, being ethical, being moral, being honest, treating your people well, building a, a really good culture. It's not a family, it's a team, but building a team where people love to come into work. And it sounds so cheesy. I overheard one of my colleagues a few days ago, I was out of eyesight, but within earshot. And I heard one of my colleagues say to one of the, one of the others going, I bloody love working here. And I was like, oh my God, like that makes me so happy. So you know, that's that's the upsides of it. It's really tough. It's relentless. And as I'm sure you have, especially in the early days where friends are like, oh my God, you're like your own boss. Like you've got great work-life balance. And it's like, no, like there's no balance. Like it's just work, <laughs> you know? So it's a very different journey. But I think if you've got a, and this sounds really cheesy, but I honestly believe it. If you've got a burning passion to solve a problem or to address an issue and you think that, you're the right person to do it, not in an arrogant sense, although there's an element of that, then you kind of have to try. And if you fail, there's no, you know, 80% of businesses fail in the first 12 months. There's no dishonor in failure. But I just think this is the most amazing journey, but it's exhausting and it's relentless. And I've lost friends over it and I've lost sleep over it. And that's the re that's the downside reality, but I wouldn't change any of that. Yeah, I relate so much to what you've said. And I think relentless is the word, to be honest with you. I think... Um... You know, you need to be relentless in your pursuits of success. <laughs> uh, you need to be relentless in your ability to be resilient. You need to be relentless in your pursuit of talent and product market fit. I love that quote that there's no dishonor in quitting or failing. I think there's actually huge amounts you can learn from that. And I would definitely implore anyone listening to this. If you have a good idea, a validated idea or one that you think you can validate. And I think also that can have a positive impact on the world. I think that's one of the things we really want to push on the podcast and message that, yes, it's great just to, to create businesses for the sake of business. Like that, that's, there's lots of learning into that, but I think there are existential challenges in the world right now that actually entrepreneurs can fix a lot of those problems. So I'm all for it. But I think there's also something to be said, and we talk about this sometimes here, that not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur and not everyone should be. And startup life is definitely not for everyone. As you say, like I have burnt out many, many times. Friendships have gone by the wayside or I've not prioritized them. I really regret that. Family, I missed a lot of chunks of my daughter's life. I've rectified now because I realized I didn't have to commute to London five days a week and work 14 hours a day, which was kind of what I thought you had to do as an entrepreneur. We have an obligation on this podcast to tell the real story. And I think that's great to hear your description of it you are working in a space the fintech space which is is an incredibly hot industry uh, but it's one that's changing all the time i'd love to hear your perspective on like what have been some of the biggest shifts that you've seen and is there anything different that you would do now like if you'd have started black billion today oh my god there's probably about a million things but i don't actually regret any of the paths that we've taken so it's, it's kind of that the irony so the biggest shift we had is we were an edtech 
company. Um, for the first four years of our life, we were purely ed tech. One of the things that I've speaking about how founders operate, one of the ways that I've tried to build the business, and again, this helps being a little bit older because you don't drink the Kool-Aid, I think, quite as much as younger entrepreneurs. Not to bash on younger entrepreneurs, but you just have more life experience when you're older and you've just seen and done more things. And so you're a little bit more cynical and skeptical is we've followed the market trends and then tried to get ahead of them. So we were pure education. We were a learning platform. I've often described it as Netflix meets Wall Street meets Sesame Street. Come in, learn a bunch of stuff, go away, right? Like that was kind of the, the idea is to, to raise people's knowledge. What became really clear relatively early on is that actually this is more of a generation and increasingly more of a culture where people just want to be told what to do, which is a whole philosophical discussion that requires, you know, whiskey. But it's an interesting discovery that actually people don't necessarily want to learn about stuff. They just want to be told, take five pounds, put it into an ISO, do that every week, right? Now, there's real downsides to that. That's how people get caught in frauds. That's how people get caught in scams. You need a certain amount of knowledge. And so what we decided was to bring how people want to be with what we think is important and meld them. And that inevitably meant going down the fintech path. And so we transitioned from being an ed tech to being an, a fintech ed tech to being a fintech. And that's very unusual, but it made sense. It made sense for us. And I think the timing is really good for us because fintech kind of 1.0, if you think five, six, seven years ago, was mass market fintech basically moving money around faster and cheaper. Like there was nothing really innovative about what, not to bash on the neobanks, but there was nothing innovative. It was just putting a nice interface on something and having it on your phone. What's happening now is that the power of things like open banking and embedded payments and the API kind of explosion has meant that now, instead of going mass market, inch deep, mile wide, I believe that the trends are towards mile deep, inch wide. So servicing a cohort brilliantly and completely instead of mass market servicing everyone with like moving their money around. So for us, it's about we know students. Students trust us. We've got hundreds of thousands of users. We've got thousands of users, new users every week. We know them end to end and inside out. And so now we can service them brilliantly by bringing them into the financial sector which whether they like it or not is going to dominate their lives forever. So that's kind of the, it's not even one shift, right? It's an entire like transition period. That's really what we've done. No, that's really interesting. And the industry as a whole, I guess, has made some positive strides in terms of lowering the barriers for entry for, for women and talent from underrepresented backgrounds. But when I look around, there is still so much work to be done. What have been the biggest hurdles for you as a woman, as a founder in fintech, yeah, look, uh, it's become a cliche to say that funding is a lot more difficult to come across as a woman. Um, I had this argument with somebody in Australia who was trying to explain to me why it was all in my head. What I like to think of as kind of like funding, gaslighting, and it's like women get two cents in every dollar. Like there's no, there's nothing to argue here. But I'm also not a female founder who spends a lot of time talking about this because I think ultimately this is a kind of be the change you want to see in the world type of situation. I don't have time to get down in the muck about why and how it's unfair. I just don't have time for that. Maybe I'll deal with that later, but right now it's not my thing. The advantage that I found being a female founder is the ability to attract the kind of talent that other people can only dream about. So half of our engineering team is women, half. Three quarters of our senior team is women. And 
partly when I've asked people like why, they're like, because there's no female founded fintech, but very few female founded fintech businesses. And I wanted to work for a woman. And I'm like, you're going to be in for a shop with me. There's people want to work at companies that they want to work at. It's not just founders want to create companies. People want to work at companies that are meaningful to them and mission driven. And for, you know, female engineers and female PMs and female UX people, working for a woman is something that is attractive to them as well. So my pool of talent that I can dip into is twice as big because there's women who want to work for a female founder, which is amazing. So our, you know, diversity hire in the early days was a white guy. (laughs) It's a completely different, completely different challenge. But look, it's not easy and being a woman is harder. And I say this a lot when I address young entrepreneurs. It is harder being a female founder. That is simply the reality of the game. If it's going to bother you on a day-to-day basis, don't do it because it's just not worth the hassle. You know, if you do do it, there's huge opportunities that you have that other people don't have. So lean into what makes you happy. And if this is going to make you miserable, then don't. Great advice. Thanks, Viv. I want to switch gears a little bit to come on to talk a bit about the cost of living crisis and financial wellbeing as a whole. We all have kind of felt the impact of the shift in the economic climate and cost of living has gone up dramatically. What tangible day-to-day advice do you have for our listeners who are trying to budget um, and just make it through this really difficult economic time? Yeah, this is a really tough time and it's particularly tough for students who are getting really no financial support at all. Um, In terms of advice, you know, there's all the usual stuff. Make sure that you know where your money's going. Um, That's, you know, budgeting is really boring. It's the most boring word in the English language. But if you can get it right, life becomes easier. In terms of students, my biggest piece of advice is see what money you can make and get, not just what money you can cut. There is a flaw to how much you can cut out of your life. But there's no ceiling to how much you can make. So budgeting is great, but growing your income today is so easy. You've got Etsy, you've got Roblox, you've got gig economy, you've got consulting, you've got freelancing. I mean, there's no end now. You don't have to build a unicorn business. If you make an extra 500 quid a week or 200 quid a week, it can make all the difference in your life. Very true. Great advice. There's lots of opportunity out there. And we've seen firsthand, I mean, we built, we've built a, a sort of, a business within JBM called SOS, which is all around playing into that gig economy where we, you know, parachute talent into companies on an interim fractional or advisory basis. And it's the fastest growing part of our company and actually perfect for founders right now who want to de-risk senior hiring or just need more greater flexibility in, in uncertain times. So I'm, I'm all for it. And we're seeing huge appetite from talent across all levels to kind of lean into that even if it's just on the side from from a day job, like a, a side hustle. Obviously, you mentioned about university students who have got a real rough deal at the moment. And we know that fees have skyrocketed. I think back to when I was at university, you know, even since then, it's gone up dramatically. What advice do you have for any students that are listening to this and parents perhaps that are listening to this who, who might be really concerned about that situation? What can they do? Yeah, so look, the cost of education has has gone up. We do still have one of the best funding systems in the world. I know it's really controversial to say. Um, When education is free, it becomes very difficult to maximize the number of people that go into education. We see this kind of all over the world. When education is super expensive, you cut out a lot of people like in the US where, you know, it's only a third of people that go to university. 
So it's expensive to go to uni, but as we know, it's tied into your income when you graduate. It gets written off after 30, well, soon to be 40 years. It's 9% over a certain amount of money. So it really is not the worst system in the world. My advice is really understand how the system works and then decide whether it's going to add sufficient value in terms of your career prospects, your networking prospects, your everything else prospects. If the answer is no, don't go to university. But if the answer is yes, then really understand the system, get as much money together as you can through scholarships, bursaries. If your family is able to help you get jobs during the summer and then have the best possible experience, get the best possible marks and then get the best, I don't want to say best possible job because it's not always about money, but get the job that you want that's going to give you joy and make your life what it is. The the debt is not American debt. If this was an American audience, we'd be having a very different conversation. Very true. Thank you. I guess you've been solving this for a large proportion of um, our society, but there's this big educational gap when it comes to financial well-being. And I think it's it's kind of one of those unsaid things for many years that there's lots of people, there's lots of adults, lots of my friends, lots of people walking around that, you know, really don't understand a lot of the important financial aspects of day-to-day life. And they're just kind of just going through the motions, but have never really learned that much. So, and that goes to simple things like managing a budget, mortgages, you know, savings, all these sorts of things. How can that gap be narrowed? Because in this climate, more than ever, it's surely really, really important that we all start to take this more seriously and, and upskill in, in different ways. Again, I'm going to say something maybe a little bit unpopular, but if people don't understand financial concepts or don't understand finance, that's a little bit on people to take personal responsibility for learning it. There, 50 years ago, you didn't have access to the amount of knowledge and learning that we have today the truth is today everything that you want to learn is on youtube for free right like if you want to learn how to budget you can type in how do i budget into youtube and there'll be a hundred million responses there is a very clear and relatively simple playbook when it comes to money spend less than you make save that money have a pension have the necessary insurance invest when you can that's it that's that's the complexity of money right how you execute that becomes more difficult and we can't pretend like there isn't a proportion of our society that simply doesn't have enough. And that's where government has to step in. That is our responsibility as a civilized society is to look after our most vulnerable people. However, there are a lot of people, and that includes a lot of students, who mismanage their money as opposed to not having enough money. And so the first thing, as always, and I'm the personal responsibility girl, is to look at your money and to figure out which category you fall into and then to make the appropriate moves there. It is getting more difficult if energy is a quarter of your spending and rent is a third to a half of your spending, you're not going to have enough money. And that's a problem. And we have to bring energy prices down and things like that. But there is an awful lot of information out there. So we, we do our very best, but we can only lean out. People have to then lean in in order to get that as well. We're doing our best, but we can't, you, what is it? You can lead a host to water, you can't make a drink. Like there is a certain element, you know, of that as well. So I know it's a little bit unpopular, but it's the reality of the game. It's very fair. And I think, you know, we all have to take personal accountability and responsibility for, for a lot of this. Uh, but as you say, just like this podcast and many others, and there's so much out there. When there's a lot going on, you sometimes bury your head in the sand. It's a bit like with maths. I was dreadful at maths at school. I hated it. I st- I stopped trying. I just thought this just isn't for me. I hate it. I much prefer English, history, philosophy, drama, like a sport, anything but maths. 
Whereas actually, I think that there's now much more accessible ways of learning in a way that I, would probably engage me a lot more. So I just think sometimes it's about finding the medium that speaks to you and, 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 and maybe not letting past uh, trauma around some of that stuff, maybe get in the way of actually learning new things that can really make life easier. And I think, you know, I, I'm somebody that this exact topic, I am some one of those people, you know, you know I run a business, I own a house, but I, I actually don't have a really in-depth knowledge to the level that I think I should of some of these really core concepts. And that's something that I personally have like made a thing on my list for this year to really work on because I don't want my daughter to be like that. I want her to be really clued up. So I think talking about this in this context, I hope will help lots of others that might feel a similar way. Absolutely. I, I often think like what, what I want to do for money is what sex in the city did for sex. Like I want people to be able to sit around with friends over drinks. If you think about pre-sex in the city days, right? Like if I can sit with a girlfriend and say, oh my God, I am in like, I don't know what to do with my, my credit card. And to be able to have that conversation, then at least we start to demystify. We start to de-scarify, if you'll forgive me for my made up words, these things around money. So I'm not blaming people obviously, who don't have enough or who don't know the questions. Um, but the more people who are able to manage, can manage, the more resource we have to help people who can't. And when when there's too many people trying to get a hold of too little resource, we can't help the people who are most in need. And so for me, there's a real element of that. But a lot of people don't know the questions to ask, so they can't Google. You can't Google what you don't know you're asking. And that's what we're trying to do is just give people the questions as much as possible. No, that's great advice. And if there's one challenge to give everyone listening to this today is to go, get out there and seek those answers and just talk to, like if you, I do this with my brother-in-law who's um, you know, spent his whole career in finance. So I just ask him and I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I, I, a lot of those questions are probably pretty, feel pretty stupid and simple, but to me, I don't know the answers he does. Uh, and actually it's quite fun having a beer and coffee just chewing the fat about stuff and learning um so maybe that's the challenge to everyone listening is this something you've always wanted to know but haven't when it comes to financial literacy go find somebody that i'm I'm sure will be happy to help education is one part of this coin but confidence is another so how do we instill more confidence particularly in children and younger people to learn about their finances and learn more about investments and things that will ultimately set them up for success in the future. Confidence is actually everything, like it is with so many other things. So as I said at the beginning, um, I was really lucky. I started these conversations when I was a kid. I actually wrote a book, my first book. I've written a couple, but my first book I wrote in like 2014 or 2013 or something, which is 52 Weeks to Financial Literacy for Kids. The idea is that everything in life actually can be tied back to some sort of money. So when you're going supermarket shopping with your kid, Give them the shopping list and give them, you know, I mean, it used to be easy to give them a 20 pound note, but give them a shopping list, give them a 20 pound note and tell them they can keep whatever change, for example. And this is how my parents used to do it. And, and then you start looking at the shelves and it's like, well, do we want Heinz baked beans or can we go for the home brand and rather get the extra pound saving? And kids don't realize that money doesn't grow on trees, you know, and that toilet paper costs money and that leaving electricity on. So my parents used to give us the electricity bill. And kind of be like, what can we do to reduce this? You know, stupid little things, but they're not so stupid later on. So parents and guardians obviously have, you know, all of this time with kids doing things like going supermarket shopping and talking at the dinner table and things like that. But as you said about your brother-in-law, just asking the questions, just getting that conversation going 
it is amazing how stupid you feel asking a question that actually very few people know. Nobody knew what inflation was until about six months ago when it started to skyrocket. So having these conversations, especially with kids, a Cambridge study has shown that children set their financial mindset at about the age of seven. I think that's kind of early because we know that people are learning throughout their life. But getting kids to understand that money doesn't grow on trees, you can't have everything you want, already puts them ahead of most other kids in terms of understanding. So it's just keeping it an open conversation, not making it something that's like hidden behind closed doors. Like I never knew what my parents earned, but I knew everything else because it was dinner conversation and just demystifying it and de-scarifying it, you know? Yeah, no, it's great advice. It's great advice. Thank you. I mean, one thing we want to do is leave our audience with some tangible things to take away from this. And I, I think we've already got tons. Is there any other bits of advice or takeaways that we can share that can come when it comes to actually like helping anyone listening to this uh, with their financial well-being so there's only two things actually that all money boils down to the first is not running out of money before you run out of months so getting from paycheck to paycheck and the other is not running out of money before you run out of life so making sure that you have enough money so that when you die hopefully not for another hundred years you've still got five quid in the bank account and if you can get both of those things right, you've done 80% of your money work. Like it really is, I don't want to say that simple, but it really is that simple. So how do you make sure that you budget from paycheck to paycheck and have enough left over that you can make sure you've got enough money to live on? Our generation and probably most people listening need to understand that the government is not coming to save us. There is not going to be a huge pension when we retire. What you have is what you will have. And so being able to focus on those things and protecting it underneath with insurance, if that's all you take away from this podcast, I've done like a year's worth of work. So it really kind of is, it kind of is. No, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure lots of our listeners will too. We're almost at close, sadly, because I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, but I, I do want to talk quickly about um, fundraising because it's a, a topic of conversation a lot of the time, particularly for early stage founders. And I know you've raised two and a half million pounds at the end of last year to help take Black Bull into their next level. So tell us a bit about the plans for the future and your learnings uh, from the fundraising journey that you can pass on to anyone else that might be going through that process right now. Yeah, so <laughs> I hate fundraising. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to not say that, but I really hate the process. This is when being a woman really does come into play and being a category creator really comes into play. Yes, we finally raised our round. It was an 11-month fundraise. I had 78 rejections. There is nothing fun about fundraising. That said, there is a certain amount of fundraising that you have to do when the opportunity cost is such that if you don't raise the money, you can't grow at the speed that you want to. So that's kind of my biggest learnings from it. The plans for the future are we will likely open a Series A um, in January in order to accelerate the next stage of our business. Our objectives are very, very, very aggressive. This is the right time. We're the right company. We're the right team to do what we're doing. And the opportunity cost of not doing it is, is simply too high. So the goal is to make Black Bullion the financial space for young people. And to do that, we need more staff and we need more capacity. And inevitably, that's going to require um, a, a Series A raise. We've raised remarkably little money over the five years of our existence where we're revenue driven. I love that. Okay, great to hear. Well, very exciting times ahead. We're really excited for you and the Black Billion team. I'm sure you're going to absolutely smash it. And I'm excited to see what you're going to achieve. 
Uh, with Sally to close, we've got three final wrap-up questions. First one is, in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Black Bullion? Massive global success, changing the world and making everyone better off making ourselves redundant. Love it. And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh my God. Super controversial because I'm not actually a huge fan of his, but I think there's a lot to learn from Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. So <laughs> I would take those two small characters. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I, I'm not huge fans, but I, I also would love to interview them as well because I think there's, you know, you can't deny their genius. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? So a little bit crude. My first ever boss was a sales a sales guy called John, um, who's now living in Malaysia, and he said to me, "Don't be afraid of anyone because everyone gets up in the morning and does a number two. Sorry to be crude, and it's really. That it's really set the tone for me when I meet people. I am not really that intimidated by anyone because 20 years ago I got that piece of advice. So people are just people. You belong in every room you walk into. Put your shoulders back. Be tall. Stand proud. Ask for what you want. Always be respectful. But if you don't ask, you don't get. And remember that nobody has it sorted out. Everyone's just faking it through life. So put your shoulders back and go for what you want because you'll regret it if you don't. Viv, what a place to end it. Love that. Uh, with that image, with that image in mind, <laughs> genuinely uh, fantastic words of mentorship, brilliant place to draw our conversation to a close. Thank you for being a 40-minute mentor. Thank you for uh, all you're doing to help, you know, a really important chunk of society become more financially literate. I'm sure uh, we're going to be hearing lots more about Black Bullion in the, in the years ahead. So thank you very much for for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me, James. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Vivi was such a great guest to have in this feature episode. I absolutely love her mission with Black Bullion and really wish it existed when I was at university. Do make sure you check them out by following the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd also really appreciate it if you could share it on social media. If you do, don't forget to tag at JBM on LinkedIn or at 40 Minute Mentor on Instagram. We really appreciate your support. And if you know anyone that would like to be a sponsor of 40 Minute Mentor, then please do reach out today. We're really looking for amazing partners for the next series and would love to talk to anyone that's interested. If that sounds like you or somebody you know, then please do drop our head of marketing, Hannah Reline, on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. We know podcast sponsorship is still a fairly new concept. We'd love to chat to you about the various different packages we have on offer so we can create something that works best for you. That's everything from us today. Thank you so much for your ongoing support of this series. And I really hope we'll see you again next week for our final episode of this feature series.